about the issues that we face each and every day. I am your host, Karen Davis-Thompson, and I am very excited to have a special guest on the mic with me today. Um, I saw her story. um, I know it aired um, originally, I believe it was last year, but I caught it a few days ago and really, really was touched by what I saw and reached out. And she was amazing enough to agree to an interview today. And so I have with me Regina Louise. And hello, Regina. How are you today? I'm great, Karen. How are you? I'm doing just fine. If you could go ahead and so I saw your story. You ended up in foster care at about age 13, right? I was actually born into foster care. Born into foster care. Okay. And so you ended up what aging out of foster care is what they call it, which for those of you who may not know, it's when you are not adopted and you turn 18 and legally become an adult as a ward of the state. You are never adopted. And so um, just tell us a little bit about how that happened and um, what led to it ending up on Lifetime. And I know that's a lot in between, but just a little bit about your story. Well. I I was born into foster care, like I said. My mother was taken in by people who found her in a home where she had shared with her mother and sister, and her mother apparently was deceased. And from there, my mother was taken to live with these people. And at 13, she had her first child, my sister. And then five years later, she had me. And then she was gone. And I don't have a lot of memory around that time, around those things, but I've, this is the story I've pieced together from things I've heard. And at 11, I took myself away from the, my caretakers, the people who had taken care of her, because of the physical abuse, the verbal abuse, the psychological abuse, you know, beaten with water hoses and hot wheel tracks and extension cords and rose bushes, just unconscionable. And, you know, I had had enough. And one day I grabbed hold of the green, cut off green water hose that my caregiver said that she was going to beat the black off me. And I, I, no, no, you're not, not, not today. And I grabbed hold of that thing. And you know, you don't do that in the South. Okay. And (laughs) girl, come on now. And quiet is a skip. And I left and I made a pact with God that I would never return. I would never return to somebody who wanted to do that to me, eviscerate me. And I thought I'd be better on my own. I ran away and ended up going to my mother, who then sent me to my father, both of whom I I hadn't met in a tangible way, meaning I hadn't met in a way where we'd actually connected or one that I remembered. And I had not met my father but briefly at like like an hour in my entire life. And, and that was when I was meeting him for the first time, like a year prior to me leaving, running away. And I went back and forth between my mother and my father until, and my father worked for Barry White at the time. And I, I again, made the decision, mm, this isn't working. Because I was able to stay with a friend that I found and 
what my father was tasked to do was pay the woman for my care. And he stopped paying and she stopped wanting to be there. And then the violence began and I had to escape. So I jumped from a two story house, ran, I was in Richmond, California at the time, ran to the police department, turned myself over. I didn't realize it was like the day before my 13th birthday. I landed at the children's shelter, the Martinez Children's Shelter, Edgar Children's Shelter. That's also what it was known as. And that began the journey that would deliver me to adulthood. And I was in and out of 30 different foster homes, a residential treatment center. I emancipated at 19 with my clothes in the glad garbage bag and not a whole lot else. Oh, I'm sorry. There was a footlocker that had a fur coat, a bottle of wine, a wine opener, and a iron that my group home owner gave me. And I took- When you turned, when you left? Yes. Yes. A fur coat. What did they think you were going to do with those things? I mean, I know what you're thinking. So (laughs) we're both thinking the same thing. Although it wasn't necessarily intended for that. She had a fur coat that she had let me borrow a few times and I loved it. And, you know, I don't think she saw the equation, a fur coat, a bottle of wine and, you know, and I was 18, a 19 at the time, but I think she was just being, she, she was being what she was being and it, and it is what it is. And I just went off to, to San Francisco state and devastated, but not able to allow devastation really to take root because it would have destroyed me. You know, I was literally in the world alone, period. There there was no social worker. There was nothing. There were no extended services and I had to figure it out. But I think the beauty in this story is I was able to, because I got serious. I, I, I got really serious You know, right now, young people have what's called guardian scholars, renaissance scholars. All the different states have varying universities that have that have programs that admit foster youth, you know, albeit EOP programs or again, as I said, guardian or renaissance or governor scholars. There was nothing like that. I did it all on my own and I had to. And so. I look back now and I just think of how remarkable it is that I was able to finish four years of high school in a year and a half because I was determined. I knew I broke into the file cabinet at the group home I lived in and I read the files. They had no hopes for me. They had no prospects for me. They thought I was a lost cause. My social worker was not interested in anything for or about me. She had written me off and she had basically said, which is the title of my second book, when I read the court file, someone has led this child to believe she is above average intelligence when she is marginal at best. That's what they thought. And that alone, that alone became the equalizer because I recognized they were lying to me. They weren't, they weren't coming clean. They weren't saying, we have no hope for you. You're hopeless. They weren't saying that. They were telling me, oh, yeah, well, 
let's see. It was always a deferral. Let's just defer, de delay the gratification, and then I'll never forget. Oh, there's just so many things that I I don't I don't want to dredge them up right now, but I made that that pact, that solemn vow with myself that I would, you know, get myself to adulthood and find the woman who loved me as a little girl and tell her thank you. So that became the the epicenter, if you will, of my quest to live my best life is I wanted to grow myself up and find that woman and just say, hey, thank you. And I wanted, I didn't want to be a statistic. So I did all those things. And I knew when I wrote my book in 2003, or when it came out in 2003, somebody's, someone, I knew as I was writing it, it should be a movie. And so I thought, oh, okay, Jada Pinkett Smith. And I thought her, she and her daughter, Willow, would be perfect for this movie. <sighs> just, I mean, come on, are you kidding? Right. And, uh, and, and yeah. And, and so I wrote to certain people, certain characters and imagined them. And then I decided that I would not stop until this movie became, this book became a movie. And then my second book, Someone Has Let This Child to Believe, which is what the movie is mostly comprised of. That was my uh, master's thesis. And I used to hear people, oh, they treat us like this in Hollywood because we're black. And, uh, you know, I get it. It's real. It's true. And I thought, but you know what? I don't care. I don't care what they do, but I am going to be committed to what I do. And my entire life has been that, you know, I'm not going to let you beat the black off me. Oh, you can put me in solitary confinement, but you will not break my spirit. Oh, oh, you don't want to put me on the cover of my book because I'm black. And because of that, no one will buy it. Oh, okay. So I, I, you know, it's like, okay, I've rolled with those punches and been witness to people and the ideologies that they choose to live their lives through. And I find ways to reinvent possibility as often as I can. And I'm a lot like a pit bull. Once my jaw, once my bite sets in, it would take the jaws of life to pry me loose from that thing that I've committed my solemn vow to. And that's why a movie now exists. That exists because I, I was uh, watching an um, interview you did with Good Morning America and was really fascinated at it took so long for them to see that this would be a great movie. Why do you think there was such um, a, a, a resistance to telling this story or allowing this story to be told in a movie? What, what do you think was the reason for that? So many reasons, but I remember someone in the publishing industry told me my first book, somebody, someone was ahead of its time. No one was writing those kinds of memoirs. And if you look up memoirs by African-American women, you can count them. At that time, it was Maya Angelou, Maya Angelou, and 
a few others. So if 169,000 books are released each year and we are less than 1% of that representation, well, that had, that was one of the variables too. I was told no, no, there are no black actresses by a black agent who could play the part of you in any way. And, you know, these are people who had jobs to, to convince people that that was the truth. And my whole thing wasn't, baby, you know what? Ah, well, wait till that girl is born, but I'm not giving up. So I think uh, it's racism, it's hegemony, it's genderism, all of the variables that are representative of intersectionality. And if we take that same framework and apply it to the media, the mediated arts, there are no people who look, Oprah was the first and only black woman who literally is on the front of her magazine every single day. You know, I'm sure there, there was a lot of thought behind that to get the country accustomed to seeing that. But then no different than Michelle Obama being on the cover of hers, it's selected as to who gets that, who gets permission to do that. So in a lot of ways, I didn't have permission to have my story written, to have that story developed and mediated because when it comes down to the bottom dollar, no audience had been cultivated for that. And when you were finally able to get it greenlighted to be a movie, what, what did that feel like? What was that like to know you'd finally been able to get that done after what was it like 16 years of trying to get it made? Right. 17, 17 years. Okay. Uh, what did it feel like? I thought, yep, that's right. That's what it, it, it felt like. This is, this is, yeah, I'm doing what, I feel guided to do that impulse, that inkling, that hard hustle value that I value very much. I've had to, you know, it's all about that black tax. It, it is, it is paid off. And yeah, I, I could tell you right now, five white friends, writer, friends and friends whose movies were made eons before mine. And they, they, the people actually came to them, you know, in, 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 in my respect, I created the conditions for people to come to me. Otherwise it would not have happened, but that's another conversation. Thank you so much for that. If we could just back up for a little bit. So you mentioned, uh, the woman who you wanted to be able to find and thank her for loving you. Her name was Jean, right? Is Jean. And how old were you when you met Jean for the first time? I was 12 because I met her the day before I turned 13. And what was it about Jean? Was it that she just seemed to, did it take a while to really understand that she really loved you and wanted the best for you? I know being, having gone through some of the things you've been through, it may have been hard to trust. You know, it's taken 40 years for me to really unpack that experience. And what I, what I recognize now is 
I realize now that my biological mother loved me, loved me, loved me, loved me. And I say this because there would have been no way Jean would have been able to attach to me or me, her, had I not received that love and that attunement and that attachment. And this is something that if I could course correct, if I could rewrite all of my work, and and if I could shout out to my mother what I never knew, but through lots of therapy, 30 years, 30 plus years of it, I would say that Jean tapped into the love that had been poured into me by my mother, by Big Mama. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't too late. And she was able to take over the building of that foundation. And, And that's what happened. And I, because I like, like I said to you off air, I've attempted to adopt five, six, seven young people in my tenure as an advocate and speaker, and none of them took. And a lot of it, I believe, has to do with, you know, attachment styles. And Gene fit the attachment style the attunement style. And yeah, we'll leave it at that. And what did you, were you there? Did you realize when she tried to adopt you that, uh, you know, from what I read in the story, it was because she was white and you were black that they would not allow the adoption to go through. Is that correct? To my knowledge. And how did you feel when you found out or did you know that she had tried to adopt you and you all were not allowed to to continue that, have that mother-daughter legally be mother and daughter? How did, how did it feel when that happened? It was eviscerating. It was like the, the last nail in the coffin of feeling a sense of worth. That, that was shot. My sense of worth was shot to hell. And any hope that I had of rising above my circumstances with support, with help, with any type of aid, that was shot. It became blisteringly real that I was going to have to figure it out, breath by breath, beat by beat, day by day, that it was over. My life, as I had hoped, as I had dreamed, as I had wanted with her, it was over. And it's it's a death that while standing in that death, also not losing so much of myself that it it literally eviscerated any sense of hope or any sense of self. 
I'm grateful for my sense of self. But at that time, again, my mother loved me. And that love was real and alive. And that love, you, you can't kill it. You can't annihilate it. It is what it is. And that love was my sustenance, was my daily bread. And it carried me emotionally when I could not carry myself spiritually or physically. So I'm, I have a newfound appreciation for the love that my mother gave me initially because it imprinted and it stayed, it, it, it marked me indelibly. So yeah, it was beyond words for what happened when Jean lost me. But obviously I was able to continue on. When did you decide that you had the strength to do what you needed to do to be able to make it and go to college. And, you know, even if I have to make this happen on my own, I'm going to do it. Do you know kind of when that switch went off or did you always kind of feel like I'm going to make it and I'm going to do great things no matter what? I, I've always had this, deep capacity to dream. And I've always felt connected to this profound sense that something already is. It's dizzying, to be quite honest. Like, for instance, I will answer your question, but I I want to illustrate something that will hopefully answer it in a roundabout way. Sure. My movie had been in, what is this, 2020? In 2018, I had a dream. And I woke up and I called the producers who had previously optioned my script And they are the ones who had taken it to Lifetime. And we had a meeting and I met with the execs and pitched and sold the movie. Well, in 2000, and then that was in 2009. And then things happened. And we didn't come back to the table until 2018 because I had a dream. I woke up. I found my producer, Yvonne. I said... I need to find Howard because he's the money man. And no, actually I found Howard and I said, I left a message. Hi, I think we should take the movie back to lifetime. They're going to buy it and they're going to make it. This is the time. The time is now. He called Yvonne. Yvonne called me and I said, it's time. Get the movie to them. Let's figure this out. And before they could figure out what it, what was going on, I called somebody else and I'm like, you have a connection? They're like, yeah. I'm like, okay, it's time. And they send the script over in true 
true is true, they bought it immediately, like during the phone call. And that is the kind of, that's what's happened to me my entire life. I have a dream and I wake up and it's as though I have everything I need to make something happen. I, I, my first career was a hairdresser. I worked at Vidal Sassoon. And before I got to Vidal Sassoon, I had ordered their collections, all of the haircutting books. And I would sit at home and study them and, and order doll heads and cut them. And I'd have these dreams of, of geometry that I, I couldn't name, but I would have dreams of oxagon, oblong, hexagons, asymmetric, geometric, and I'd see these shapes. And then I was able in the dream to slow the shapes down and figure them out in third dimension. And the Vidal Sassoon training program was a two-year program, 24 months. I got through in six because I see things in dreams. I get these hints. I get these messages. And I go. And I do. A month ago, no, I'm sorry, three months ago, I got it. Audible.com, which I had applied to for for something. I had applied and, and, and submitted my work. They said, not at this time. And then a year later, I get another not at this time rejection letter from them. And I turn around and say, you know, oh my God, I got my dreams crushed once by you. Do you really have to rub it in? And the lady says, I'm sorry. And then something says, lean in now. And then I say, well, if you're that sorry, why don't you send me the contact information of your audiobook acquisitions editor? She does. And in seven days, I sold the rights to my audiobook. It, I, I listen. And when spirit, when spirit says now, I do my best. I do my best to be in service to that. And then I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And I've been that way since I was a girl when I made that path with God. Should she hit me one more time? It'll be a sign from you, right? And God's like, yep, mm -hmm. yeah. for me to go. And here we are. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, let's, again, go back to... When did you have the opportunity to finally meet Jean again and thank her? And then um, obviously the relationship began to flourish again from there. What year was that? When did that happen? I met Jean again in the summer of 2003. It's when my book, Somebody, Someone, my first memoir was released and I was on book tour. And I met her then. We reunited at LaGuardia Airport in New York. And 
you know, my word of the hour is dizzying. It was dizzying. It was otherworldly. It was profound. I still, to this day, don't have the words for that because I think a lot of the wounds that I had as a result of losing her were stupefying. They were numbing. My psyche shut down. It was traumatic. And not so unsimilar when I reunited, when we reunited, I was, I was somnambulistic. It was like I was sleepwalking. My senses were overwhelmed and it had its own trauma as well. And it was complex. Let's say that complex. So many emotions, probably far too many emotions that could be slow down like in bullet sequence. I would have to slow it down in bullet sequence to see the plethora of emotions, the array of sensations and feelings. Emotions or feelings are different. And so to have the complexity of feelings and then emotions and then sensations, it, it was it was it was a uh, a carnival of experiences all at once. And at what point did you all decide that you wanted to go ahead and do what you were unable to do all those years earlier? And that was for her to be able to formally adopt you. And I think it was in the same courthouse, in the same courtroom where it was first denied. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. It was pretty soon. Jean proposed the idea of adopting me day two. And... I accepted it. You know, it was really beautiful, really dramatic. Yeah. And I just said, yeah, let, let's do that. And and why was that something that you wanted to do? I like to win. Okay. I enjoy winning. I enjoy that whole boomerang effect of, speaking into life. This is what I'm going to do. And having that come full circle. So I wanted her as my mother. And here was the opportunity. The boomerang was coming back around. And I thought, why not? I understood that there were limitations like, We could never go back and right any of the wrongs, assuming they were all wrongs. I knew I couldn't do that, but I thought, yes, let me be Regina Louise Kerr. I, I, I would like that. And so, yes, in my life, yeses. I didn't get, I don't get a lot of offers in my life. I create a lot of opportunities. And when I get those offers, those rare moments, when I'm asked, when I'm asked to have an opportunity to say yes is brilliant, is beautiful, is profound. It's, It's a gift. And I see it as such. 
So here was a gift. And I wanted to affirm it with everything I was learning. And that's why I said yes. And for people who have the opportunity to see your story, to read your book, what do you want them to most walk away from knowing about you and about your story once they've completed the book or or seen the movie? Big question. There's not one thing. There's so many things. One thing is I want people to actually not see this as that old hackneyed trope of a white woman saves a black girl, but more so love supports a black girl to save herself. I saved myself. Jean's love for the 15 minutes it was in my life was was confirming my own mother's love. And then it was up to me for the next 30 years to scale that, to multiply that love, kind of like the feeding of the 5,000, right? The fish and loaves story. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but it's, 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 Brilliant to think, how did that miracle work? How did that act of the miraculous actually work? What's the arithmetic on that? What's the spiritual arithmetic on that? And it's the same thing here. Jean loving me at a very poignant time confirmed that I was lovable. And then I took that lovability and invested it into my most probable outcome of success. And I want people to take that away, that no amount of love you give a child is ever wasted. And that love that you pour into them could be the difference between life and death healthy self-esteem and low self-esteem, worth and unworthiness. So give that child all that they deserve while that child is in your care and never make it about money because Jean never received a dime for caring for me. So something along those lines. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that, Regina. This has been an amazing conversation. I just wanted to let people know. So your latest book is Someone Has Led This Child to Believe. Yes. And your first book is Somebody's Someone, a memoir, a memoir, and they're both available um, on Amazon, correct? Well, somebody's Someone is only available via ebook, e-book. and Someone Has Led This Child to Believe is available on Amazon and Someone Has Let This Child to Believe is available on Audible. And if you like, I will give you one free 
link to a free audio book to use as you wish along with this interview. Well, thank you. That would be wonderful. I would love to be able to give that to one of my listeners. I really appreciate that. And also the movie, I Am Somebody's Child, the Regina Louise story, they can find that on Lifetime. And it looks like I was able to find where you might be able to purchase the movie on Amazon as well. Amazon correct? Prime. You can purchase it on Amazon Prime, I believe on iTunes, as well as YouTube. Thank you so much. And so listeners, please make sure that you have all of that. I will put it in the show notes as well as how you can enter for the free link that Regina is so generously going to give us to go along with this episode. Uh, That is all the time we have again, Regina. Thank you so much. If you have any questions for me or topics you want to hear about, please hit me up at kdt at inmyshoestoday.com. Again, kdt at inmyshoestoday.com. Thank you. This has been an amazing interview. And until next time. Be blessed.